Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Greg, look what I baked for everybody here at work. Blondies. They came out kind of a weird color and they're kind of squishy, but I tasted one and they're... Attention all security personnel. I have a possible Semtex or C4 situation here on floor three. Suspect, codenamed Dreadlock, is holding a tray of what appears to be plastic explosives. This is code red. I repeat, code red. Greg, come on. These are just, they're blondies, okay? I've been watching you for a long time, Wolf. You're weird. You're different. But you pushed it too far this time, Miss Kami Beatnik Muslim Rapist Mexico Drug Lord. Grab her, boys. No, wait, ow! Are you kidding me? Ah, these handcuffs hurt. Look, okay, just taste what's in the tray. Okay, I will. Am I crazy, or is there maybe too much brown sugar and hardly any butterscotch? Agent Weatherby, try one of these. They're supposed to be butterscotchy, right? Wolf, we're going to take this evidence up to the security break room. Meanwhile, you sit here in those handcuffs and think about what you did. Hear me? What I did? I baked stuff for my coworkers. How can that be a crime? Actually, I pooped in the brownie mix. I hope those guys have never seen the help. Today on the show, all the ways you can get into trouble for being different. And now he hopes Vanessa Williams will finally start answering his mail now. Colin McEnroe. I've been writing her about three letters a week ever since the incident all those years ago. And now that the pressure's off a little bit, I'm kind of hoping, you know, that we can really maybe strike up some kind of correspondence. and They won't be returned to me unopened. Uh, all right. So it is uh, uh, the nose. Uh, it's a very special edition of, uh, edition of the nose in the words of Jim Chapdelaine. It's the we're finally going to have to suck it up and learn how to say burrito edition of the nose. Uh, and so let me introduce to you who our panelists are today. Jim Chapdelaine is a music god. His Secret Service code name is Wawa Pedal. Irene Papoulis is a grape leaf of feminism wrapped around a filling of humanities. Her secret surface code name is Dolmades. And Kate Russian is a poet who opens her throat to sing of freedom. Her secret service code name is Caged Bird. Uh, they're all here with us today. Uh, we are going to talk in the first segment about two stories about why it's still kind of maybe not so good to be different here in America. Although both of these stories do basically have happy or at least not drastically unhappy endings. The first one is about Vanessa Ruiz. She is an anchor at News 12 in Phoenix. And according to the station's news director, some viewers objected to the way that Ms. Ruiz pronounced Miss, well, she said Mesa, the third largest city in Arizona. Locals pronounce it Mesa, but many Spanish speakers and natives do say Mesa. Uh, the news director said, in addition, Viewers notice that Miss Ruiz rolls her R's when pronouncing Spanish words. Um, and so she has had to uh, uh, issue a statement about it, not exactly an apology, but sort of an explanation about how she feels about this. And it's uh, been the occasion for a lot of interesting writing op-ed pieces in The New York Times and a piece in Commonweal by our occasional nose panelist friend, Rand Richards Cooper. So um, Irene Papoulis, since you are very well acquainted with a man who rolls his R's occasionally, um, how does this look to you? I mean, is there – I guess maybe let – me, let me put it to, a, to you a different way. A friend, uh, Rand Cooper, said you can never 
unthread the politics from this. So if that's true, what are the politics? Um, well, there's a lot of different angles. Let's see. Well, the first, I think the most obvious politics is that um, those people that criticized her just are very uncomfortable with people that don't, that who, who aren't like them, you know? Uh, and uh, so they hear that kind of uh, language and they feel like it's not really English, which is just kind of astonishing if you think about it. Because I was thinking, like, th- it's imagine an American in France saying, you know, George Bush, and people saying, no, you should say George Bush. Why are you not saying that? You know, it's just it's it's so outrageous if you think about it from a multilingual point of view. So the uh, and but it's a it's a sign of a very horrible and insidious force in our culture that's very real. Well, I mean, Kate, is there any case that can be made for the idea that at least somehow or other this, this stuff needs to be standardized? I mean, Rand pointed out that, I mean, we don't say Paris. We say Paris. Uh, and and on the other hand, we don't say noblesse oblige. We say noblesse oblige. That we're kind of haphazard about this whole thing. To what degree we adapt a foreign word to our own uses or preserve the, the, the sound of that, that other language? Well, we are in a society that's around 30 percent Spanish-speaking, I believe, and we're way past the generations when everybody on TV had to sound like uh, Johnny Carson and and Jack Parr. And there's so many exceptions to the rule, and and the language is so fluid. Um, You know, I I just think it's it's a natural evolution, um, uh, what's happening now. Uh, one thing I find ironic is that when Spanish-speaking people are speaking Spanish on the radio, they will pronounce certain English names as English names mm-hmm. or with an American accent, like Le Big Mac. You know, I think about the that scene from um, Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And when I listen to uh, Spanish-speaking DJs uh, say uh, uh, show that comes out of Springfield when uh, Raquel pronounces an American English name, she pronounces it as an American English name, even when she's speaking Spanish. So I don't have any problem. But at I guess, all but if it's a Spanish, reason. yeah, if it's a Spanish word, and that's the way, she, like mesa, mesa. Um, you know, it, it just comes out that way if that's your native tongue. You know, if you grew up speaking Spanish, you're going to pronounce it the correct way in Spanish. It's, that's different from us trying to say noblesse oblige. You know? Well, let's hear, before we hear from Jim Chapelaine, let's hear uh, Mike Berbiglia talking about uh, the struggles that, that he has around this question. So I never, I never went to see a doctor until about three years ago. Uh, I was performing at a college in uh, Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, I'm a comedian by trade. And uh, I was I was staying at a hotel called uh, La Quinta Inn, uh, and some people correct me. They go, no, 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 it's La Quinta. Uh, I'm like, that's not fair. You can't force me to speak Spanish. Uh, I, I met La Quinta Inn in Guayabaya, Washington, and... So, uh, actually, I've heard him do that bit live, and occasionally what he'll, he'll, he'll do is say, you can't force me to speak Spanish. I didn't press two. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, there, there is some way. I feel like, Jim, that there's something else that we're talking about. I mean, we're, we're talking about language, um, but the, the, the fact that this gets on people's nerves all the time, it's about something else, but I can't. I don't even know how to articulate what that thing is. Well, it's, it's got on people's 
nerves. There's certainly been, uh, you know, Irene drew our attention uh, in the thread to the great SNL skit where uh, the NPR commentator would just be talking about the situation in Nicaragua <laughs> and would over enunciate that. Um, but it, I think it sort of speaks to this sort of fearful white people thing like, oh, what's happening? And, and, and that maybe will tie well, us into it. We'll talk about it later. But there's a xenophobia kind of thing, and it's that other person's language. It's, there's I, a certain je ne sais quoi that we can't explain. A certain explain je ne sais quoi. But I think that there's also com- – it's coming at it from two sides because the Nicaragua thing was – I at least read it, would see it as, you know, white people feeling like, okay, I'm supposed to respect the culture, so I shouldn't just say Nicaragua. I should say Nicaragua, you know, in a way that is ridiculously exaggerated because I'm trying to sort of express my solidarity with people that speak Spanish. So that's one side of the divide. And then the people that are criticizing Vanessa Ruiz are on the other side, you know, saying, you, you, you know, so we, we get irritated for different reasons. Yeah, you, so I wanted to sort of just jump on that. And for a second. I, I do, the more you guys are talking, the more I realize that there is, I mean, language is imperialism or, or, it's, or it's inclusion. So, I mean, and those are the two strains you're talking about right now. And I have to say, and by the way, if you want to call in about this, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I, I, I feel as though having listened to a lot of BBC, the British uh, presenters, as they're called, often will really badly mispronounce foreign words as if they're, tr- say, as if they're implicitly saying the, in a way that kind of harks back to the sun never setting on the British Empire and to the Raj and all this stuff. We are not they, they going to learn. They English words, yeah. too. Yeah, true, true. But, um, but they'll say Nicaragua. Or, or, I mean, they'll like really flatten what's a long A in Spanish in order to emphasize that. So that's the, that's the one thing. We're going to say this our way. We're not going to say it your way, even though it's your word. And then the other thing is the thing that Irene's talking about, and we've got another uh, clip, I think, that kind of illustrates this, which is the almost fawning, wheedling, over pleasing uh, need to say the word in a certain way. I cannot wait to try the food here. The reviews have been incredible. Okay, what's good? Um, I've heard good things about the prosciutto, um, also the caprese, also the mozzarella sticks, uh, and the bruschetta, uh, and the garlic bread. Do you mean bruschetta? Yeah, bruschetta. Why are you saying it that way? That's how it's supposed to be pronounced. People like it when you embrace their culture. It's very respectful. Ooh, they have linguini. Okay, talking to you is embarrassing, and I want to change the subject. Have you guys eaten in this neighborhood before? Actually, right next door, there's this amazing Spanish restaurant. They do the best tapas and gazpacho. You mean tapas and gazpacho? Yeah, that's what I said. Tapas and gazpacho. That is not what you said! And, like, one block down, there's this sushi restaurant that you have to try. That is racist. It's not racist. Look... If anything, it's less racist. I'm not imposing my anglicized pronunciation on these foreign words like some sort of linguistic conquistador. <laughs> so, you know, that's very funny, obviously, Kate. But there's also some truth there, too. There's, there's, you can go too far trying, I, I think anyway, to, uh, to capture the sound of something that's not really your own sound. And after a while, you do sound as though you're truckling in a way that's more about distinguishing yourself uh, than it is uh, about accommodating the way somebody else speaks. Absolutely. You know, it can be a way of saying, you know, I've traveled, I'm sophisticated, uh, I'm more in touch with this other culture. But still going back to the uh, Vanessa Ruiz, I can't help but think that some of the uh, dust up around her pronunciation has something to do with um, this whole uh, 
anti-immigrant push, especially in the Southwest, and uh, uh, laws that have been put forward, proposals that have been put forward regarding English only and uh, anti-Chicano studies measures that uh, have been f- put forward in uh, Arizona and Mexico and other places. We've got some calls coming in, and I want to take them. But, you know, to that point, I mean, yeah, I think that, that what you're seeing there in Arizona obviously is just um, a linguistic flame up from the smoldering and not always just smoldering tensions around this. And, and those tensions go way, way back. And the tensions that you're talking about, the English only. We have a national language. You've got Donald Trump right now saying to Jeb Bush, he shouldn't be speaking Spanish in public situations because, after all, you're in America, the parenthetical uh, implication being we have a national language. We don't speak other languages, which, you know, uh, Rand pointed this out in his piece. is also kind of like a slightly embarrassing attitude. We're Americans. We don't know any other languages. But, um, but you know, if, if you want to see how this plays out in an odd way, I, I mean, when you go to – uh, Quebec province and Montreal in particular in Canada, you can sort of see that it's there's something besides just boorishness there. I mean, there there's a lot, always a lot of tension. I, I, have, I have often said, I think I've said this on the show before, there ought to even be a name in Montreal for this little beat you see uh, where um, an, an Anglophone and a, a Francophone, or just two people meet, and each of them is trying to size the other up before either one has said a word. Is this conversation going to take place in English or French? And then the answers to all those questions are laden with with this a huge amount of political and social content and cigarette smoke and cigarette smoke. Yeah, but but where? Wait, I didn't quite understand where where's the boorishness? You said there's, there's well, the, the well, I think there's boorishness here. You know that that just boorishness. You know, like oh, we're not yeah. going to learn your language. We're not going to accommodate you. We've got one language. Don't expect there to be signs in two different languages. We object to that. You know that that to me is boorishness. Right, and and I, and I would all. I would even add that I, ironically, the sort of I love the line in that in that clip of um, people like it when you embrace their language, you know, mm-hmm. because it's sort of it's that's boorishness also in the sense that you're trying to, you know, it, it, it's not understanding that those people are going to understand <laughs> understand you however you say the word, you know, and so this sort of patronizing thing I'm going to say bruschetta, you know, in the right way is is exactly not understanding the other people. You also, know? And so, also, you're never going to pronounce it right. right I mean, right. I, I want to yeah. go to some phones here, but I mean, I certainly, I've had, you know, Steve Martin has, used to talk about being in Paris and, and being in a restaurant and ordering some fromage, and the waiter just looks at him in perplexity and, you know, fromage! Fr- and the waiter Try like, hang out with the, an Irish man right. and say Beaujon. And, you know, and the waiter's sort of lo- looking at him and still in perplexity, and finally, you know, he writes it down, F-R-O-M-M-A-G-E, and the waiter goes, oh, fromage! <laughs> Why didn't you say so? Um, so, I mean, the truth is that the guy in the restaurant, he's probably not pronouncing it all that well anyway. Let me just grab a call here from, as, if, as soon as I can figure out how to guide the mouse. There we go. Uh, from Rosalind in Portland. Hi, Rosalind. Hi, Colin. Um, yeah, I have noticed a lot of people, um, you know, on TV and stuff, speaking, um, saying a Spanish word or name in the correct accent uh, after speaking in English. Um, I've taken a lot of years of Spanish in junior high, high school, some college, and um, I'm, not a, I'm not Hispanic, and I'm not fluent, but I still use it. I have no problem with this, you know? I just think it's kind of ignorant um, if people, you know, object to them, to Hispanics, or non-Hispanics uh, trying to pronounce a word or name correctly in that language. My son, 
who's just turned 13, he, he gets angry at me if I say a Spanish word or name in the correct way. And I'm just thinking that these people who criticize like that, they're just, um, they're, they're going down to his, his level when they, when they criticize like that. Right. So, um, well, thanks for your call. And so, Jim, you know, another part of this, I think, is, you know, some people um, enjoy living in a country where not everybody sounds the exact, exact same way. And to tell you the truth, I mean, I don't think Donald Trump speaks correctly accented English, but, but you know, I mean, in other words, everybody speaks somewhat differently. NPR listeners love to hear Sylvia Pajoli say her name at the end yeah. of things mm-hmm. because she says it this Got certain it way. And, and I assume that most of us, if we were watching News 12 in Phoenix, we kind of dig, you know, we would like, be waiting for, for Vanessa Ruiz to come up, up on a Spanish name with a bunch of R's in it just because it would be fun. Uh, sure. But for a lot of people, that's not fun, right? It's threatening. I, I guess it is. You know, I, I go back. I used to give a lecture at heart um, to young record producers because we sort of see every slice of culture come through the studio. Um, and, and in a nutshell, it's basically you need to understand the language, but don't necessarily try to speak it. If a hip hop group comes in, you can't learn 42 handshakes and start, you know, growing up all in. If a frat boy band comes in, you don't have to flip your baseball cap backwards. You know, just understand what they're saying. Um, so there's a certain res- level of respect. And I think once you start treading into, oh, I'm one of these guys now and start, you know, freestyling, you know, it, you're just asking for trouble. So m- maybe it's the idea that we just have to understand people's culture more and you're you're right about donald trump trump he he hardly speaks uh, he has a, a very pronounced joe pesci like uh, accent uh, new york it's new york it's wicked very 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 new york it's a top new york accent all right uh, one more call from jackie we're going to move on to the story of ahmed muhammad after that but uh here is which i'm probably just mispronounced but anyway here's uh, jackie from west hartford hi you're on the air hi um i just wanted to make a quick comment and get your thoughts on this. I am a native Farsi speaker and um, can also butcher Arabic pretty well. <laughs> and I rarely, if ever, correct people when they're using the wrong pronunciation to pronounce a geographic location in the Middle East or a name because I'm just really happy that they are trying, that they know the location, they know the geography. And they're giving it their best shot. And I really try not to intimidate people or make them feel bad about themselves. And I find that people who try to do that or try to really stick with the pronunciation, I find them quite honestly obnoxious. Well, I have to say, Jackie, your approach sounds way too reasonable. Uh, (laughs) It's almost un-American. I I do feel as though Americans are super comfortable not knowing how anything's pronounced. And (laughs) we did a show uh, recently. You may have heard it and heard me badly mispronounce various people's names, Jackie, but but, but with people who are are here, who have moved here from Iran. And the first thing I realized as we were getting ready for the show is that Americans pronounce the name of that country at least three different ways. Uh, It's Iran. Yeah, I know. It's Iran, but you can you hear Iran, Iran, Iran. I like heard multiple pronunciations just for the name of the country. Forget any Farsi words or anything like that. We're not even sure how to say the name of the country. So and, yeah, and I hear you. I just want to add one thing though. But living in Iran and being a native speaker and having been fortunate enough to live in other countries, one thing I find I find that 
Americans, and I'm bilingual, and I have two passports, and I consider Americans, actually, I think we're sometimes too hard on ourselves, because in Iran, people are, you're literally, when you're there, people are happy you're trying. Yes. And no one ever, I mean, they might correct you if you're so off that they don't understand you, mm -hmm. but other than that, they're just so happy you're trying. True. And I just feel that in, in America, and, you know, especially... In more liberal parts of America, you know, we are so hard on ourselves. On the other and hand, we don't I, I, give ourselves an inch. It's a, and it's, other countries, people are just psyched you're trying. They are psyched you're trying, but look, let's be honest. It'd be a lot easier to find somebody who spoke English on the street in Tehran than it would be to find somebody who, who spoke Farsi, you know, on Fifth Avenue in New York. So uh, okay, but also we've got a long forget, way to go. Their pronunciation of English is pretty bad when yeah. they speak, but they're trying. They're trying. So as long as we're all trying, I think that's good. It's a good segue also to the story of Ahmed Mohammed. Uh, he is um, from Irving, Texas. He's a um, Sudanese-American uh, youth, very young high schooler who did the usual thing. He, he did a home science project. He brought it into school. Uh, it was a clock. Uh, but that wasn't apparently readily evident. Uh, so he's 14 years old. Uh, he's from a Dallas suburb uh, of Irving, Texas. He had hoped to impress a teacher. Instead, after the device beeped in an English class, he was arrested and questioned for an hour and a half on suspicion that the device might be a bomb. Uh, or in or in some case, maybe perhaps a hoax bomb. Uh, anyway, nothing of the case was true. I mean, this young man was, you know, I mean, he was cuffed and all this kind of stuff. He's just a tinkerer. He's a kid who likes to work on stuff. He's done this uh, all his life, basically. He does little home projects for his father. Um, so the happy part of this is that he's getting all kinds of props from the likes of Mark Zuckerberg uh, and from President Obama, who invited him to the White House on Twitter. Uh, I don't know if that really gets you into the White House, that you know, that you could tweet it <laughs> at that way. But he said he tweeted, "Cool clock, Ahmed. Uh, Want to bring it to the White House? We should inspire more kids like you to like science. It's what makes America great." Uh, he's been on the Chris Hayes show, <laughs> MSNBC, some MIT. I mean, things good are good things are. I'm I'm sure the Pope is going to find him next week. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just like it's you know, I mean, no, nobody's going to. But I mean, the whole thing did start, and and once again, you know, and and Kate is this. I mean, the, the, it seems to me one of the uh, the operant questions here is: it, Did this happen just because he showed up with something with some wires and a motherboard or you know something like that, or did it happen because his name is Ahmed Mohammed and he's Sudanese and he showed up with those things? And what we may, we may never know the answer to that question, or maybe you you feel like maybe we do. We may not know the answer, but I, I just can't imagine how. His teacher could not just look at him, talk to him, and listen to him and not know that he was not a threat. Mm -hmm. And I just can't imagine uh, how a 14-year-old would feel being handcuffed in their school and taken to juvie. It, it, yeah, Irene, as, the, uh, as an educator, I mean, it does feel like a pedagogical fa failure in the way that Kate's saying. Like, do, do you, like, know your students or not? I mean, you would know all this about this kid, one would assume. Yeah. I mean, and you would assume the police would, too, after talking to them for five minutes. You know, I mean, and I think it's absolutely a function of his name and his ethnicity. You know, let's, let's be real. If his name were, like, you know, Bobby Jones and he made a little clock... You know, would anyone have? No, no one would have. You know, and so it's a hor It's interesting. It's a horrifying story, but I, 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 I do think the White House, you know, made really good use of it. Well, um, but I wonder how many kids feel like they don't even get to that point. You know, how many kids like him don't even get to that point because they just don't feel. Yeah. 
uh, like they have a place, they have a they ha- they have a right in the culture, you know, um, in some of those, you know, with a teacher like that, with a system like that, that wouldn't say, wouldn't have everyone in the school saying, this is crazy. You know, uh, I, I just don't understand. You know, it's just amazing. Although, to Irene and Kate's point, all right, so I did discover the story of Kira Wilmot, who's now 19 years old. She's African-American. Um, in 2013, she brought a science project to school in Barlow, Florida. It was a makeshift volcano that she was very excited to show her teacher. Um, he said he needed to approve it first, so I brought it in thinking he literally needed to see it in person. She said the project was, quote, more advanced, unquote, than a baking soda and vinegar volcano, and her classmates asked to see how it worked. Wilmot said she activated the volcano outside the cafeteria of Bartow High School that morning when the lid popped off and the bottom of the device began to smoke. No students were hurt and no school property was damaged. Soon after, the, six, the then 16-year-old was approached by the dean of students. He said, what's go- she, she, he said, what's going on? Oh, she said, I was just showing myself science project to my friends. She was arrested, too. She was brought to a juvenile detention center where she was arrested on bomb charges. I cried as soon as they told me, she said. Uh, As they were fingerprinting and taking mugshots, I said, oh, gosh, I'm an actual criminal. I know I didn't do anything wrong, but I felt like I had to believe I did do something wrong. Jim, Mm -hmm. possibly the good thing about this would be maybe we don't have to do science projects or our kids don't have to do I mean, how many of us have labored late at night to help our kid make a volcano to bring in the next day? Every, every night, every <laughs> night. So, I, But it does speak to an anti-science climate that we live in. But there is another component of this that we're, nobody's mentioned, I don't think, and that is that terrible things have happened in schools. And I can understand, regardless of anybody's name, if you look at that, for people who watch CSI, that looks like uh, – or, or even Mannix. Mm. That looks like the bomb under the car. Um, so – but within 10 minutes, that situation should have been diffused, no pun intended. Um, it, it, and it should never have gone beyond that. I, I, I totally understand why someone would be concerned. It beeps. Look, it goes off. It's got a potential detonator. Look at the – it's – we don't understand it. This kid, ooh, ooh. But within 10 minutes, that should be over. You know, even mm. if you're going to give that device to the police, the kid doesn't have to be in handcuffs. You, he's not, he hasn't done it harm. He has shown no malice towards anyone. He's a curious science geek. And what do we need more of in this country? Science geeks. I think that that, that threads the needle just about right. Uh, you don't want to be unwatchful, but you don't want to be th- – we like to throw people in handcuffs. I don't quite understand why that is, but it's something we seem to like to do. We've got Clark. He's hands-free on I-84. I'm not sure we're going to be able to hear him, but uh, Clark, what have you got for us? You know, it's like, like the other gentleman was just, was just saying that there, there was no, like, protocol taken that would indicate that anybody really thought it was a bomb. Nobody was evacuated. The bomb squad, uh, bomb squad wasn't called. It was just, it seems more like an attempt to embarrass the kid, which I find, you know, just gross. Right. Uh, it, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, if, you, if they really thought it was a bomb, they would have done a whole bunch of things. All right. We've got to take a break. We've got to have time for some other stuff. We'll do that. We'll come back. All right, we're back. This is The News. With us are Irene Papoulis, uh, Kate Russian, and Jim Chapdelaine. Uh, I hope you're with us, too. Uh, we're going to shift gears here yet again. Um, and, you know, ordinarily on The News, or I, I keep saying this, but ordinarily on The News, I don't really think it's like a show about politics, but I do feel as though what's happening right now isn't even exactly about politics. I'm talking about an actual political campaign. I feel like something else is going on that doesn't really resemble anything I've ever seen in trying to cover politics over all these years. And, and today, 
<laughs> and I think what you're going to – well, anyway, today it seemed like the New York Times editorial uh, board snapped because editorials are kind of usually written in a fairly formal way. And uh, even if it's not the style book for the rest of the newspaper, people are always called Mr. or Ms. or Mrs. Uh, and, uh, and so <laughs> the lead editorial in the New York Times today, the headline is, Crazy talk at the Republican debate. Uh, it begins. Eleven presidential candidates had three time, uh, three primetime hours on the national stage on Wednesday to tell the American people why they should lead the country. Nobody forced them to be there. They were there freely, armed with the best arguments they and their policy advisors had come up with to make their cases as seasoned politicians, business leaders, and medical professionals. The Republican Party's A-team, as one of them, Mike Huckabee, said at the outset. And that, America, is frightening. Feel, peel back the boasting and insults, the lies and exaggerations common to any presidential campaign. What remains is a collection of assertions so untrue, so bizarre, that they form a vision as surreal as the Ronald Reagan jet looming behind the candidates' lecterns. Um, and the editorial goes on in that vein. And um, Irene, I think you shared my sense that this is an unusual tone for a New York Times editorial to take. It's an unusual tone, and it just kind of um, maybe woke me or, or somehow uh, inspired me out of the stupor that I feel like I've been in, a stupor of accepting the the fact that these politicians are crazy and they're going to say things that aren't true and they're going to not uh, respond if someone says Obama's a Muslim and they're going to make up all these lies about everything and what they're going to do, you know. And we, we I feel like we've just gotten to a point where we all say, oh, yeah, that well, that's just what they do. Yeah, of course it's a lie, but that's just what happens. You know, that that's just how they do it. So many people that I know say that. And so to, to see the New York Times you know, saying, no, this is not true. This is crazy. This is even even the word scary is really exciting. And maybe they're going to lead a charge. Maybe we really need to start talking, you know, saying that more instead of just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just it's just the way it is. It's maybe it, it shouldn't be the way it is. And, you know, maybe there is something we can do about it. Well, I mean, Jim, I think you you like me noticed that the uh, debate on Wednesday was watched by nearly 23 million viewers, making it the most watched telecast in the history of CNN, according to the preliminary numbers. And there's sort of a secondary set of numbers for live streams and stuff like that. Um, and and I'm trying to figure out what to make of that. But I I, th- I wonder if it means that if you want to make this kind of thing interesting enough to get 23 million uh, viewers, you it's got to be not like a political debate, that, that, that somehow or other the things that the New York Times finds so deplorable are exactly why it's sort of must-see TV. In the run-up to that debate, um, for, one thing is they, they charge 40 times what they normally charge for advertising, <laughs> 40 times. So that's what, so CNN, I think their average viewership at night is a million or two million at the most on a good night. Um, so so the run up, it was, you know, Jake Tapper is going to ask the hard questions. And Jake Tapper is supposed to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. And and so it, he said he was setting it up to pit them against each other, sort of like world wrestling. And ironically, Donald Trump has actually appeared sort of on like world, world wrestling. wrestling. <laughs> and, and and so Jake Tapper becomes Vince McMahon and uh. Dana Bosch becomes Linda McMahon and, and Hugh Hewitt becomes Hugh Hewitt and or Captain Lou Albano. And they're they're it's really set it's up a to good bring out the worst in people. And I think the first debate a lot of us watched because it was theater. And I think the second debate 
was so exasperating that the theatrical part of it just wore off really quickly. Well, so wh- why was it exasperating? Well, actually, uh, why don't we give people an example of the worst uh, possible things coming out? The If you didn't watch the debate, uh, here's the kind of thing that Jim Chapdelaine is talking about. Uh, clip one, please. I'm sorry. I... His visceral response to attack people on their appearance, short, tall, fat, ugly. My goodness, that happened in junior high. Are we not way above that? Would we not all be worried to have someone like that in charge of the nuclear arsenal? Mr. Trump, I never attacked him on his look, and believe me, there's plenty of subject matter right there. So uh, that's the kind of thing that Jake uh, Jake Tapper is getting uh, out of these people. So, Kate Rushen, I do feel as though for every time we do the nose, I should have a red button that I could push and just get James Hanley on the line so that um, I can hear, you know, the perfect... Uh, sort of capitalist critique uh, or anti-capitalist critique of what's going on. Because I know what James would say right now, which is that Jim's point is the important one, that this is turned into something you can charge a lot of money for, and that that's become more important than the political process, than the process of sorting out leadership qualities. So if you're waiting for someone to put a stop to it, and I, now I think I am channeling Jim, uh, uh, James Hanley, um, if you're waiting for somebody to put a stop for it, you might have to wait a long time because in whose interest is it to put a stop to it? I had intended to say I was so uh, disappointed in CNN until Jim made his comment. And I said, oh, Kate, you're so naive because the RNC is crazy like a fox because they're just uh, generating money for the RNC, for the candidates, and they're activating their, their base. And I wonder why the, the Democrats are tamping down uh, the debates uh, because they're tamping down energy, whereas the Republicans, as ridiculous as it may seem – They've got 23 million eyes on them. In I think a lot of those eyes are watching out of – they're just watching because it's pure spectacle at this yeah. point. I don't think are, – are you watching because you think your mind will be changed by mm-hmm. one of these people? No, but as Colin you said – or you said they're, they're charging CNN charge Yeah, this is sort of the ultimate times the result of Citizens United. Right, this so, is like money, 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 money. Yeah, so that's that's – Irene, I wonder what you think of this argument because that's the way it's starting to seem to me uh, that, that the coverage of the electoral process in the past was sort of a burden that networks had to bear before there were CNNs and MSNBCs and stuff like that. It wasn't usually the most exciting thing in the world, certainly um, a, a, an intra-party debate uh, you know, positioned 15 months or whatever it is before, I guess it's 13 months or so before the actual election, you know, would be the kind of thing that CBS just wouldn't have carried back in the old days. And and what almost had to happen, there was almost, there's almost an evolutionary process maybe that screams out for, us, uh, for it. It had to be turned into something that really could be monetized. And so it's not as though Donald Trump, I mean, Donald Trump, if he didn't exist CNN and Fox would invent him just to, just to, to make this kind of thing happen. But are we, well, are, we are we are we being too Hanley esque about this? And we'll go to Kate. Are we being too? I mean, well, or they're they're certainly capitalizing on it. I mean, because in a way, the direction that we were going in before Trump was that people just weren't watching the debates, you mm-hmm. know. But now that it's turned into a show, people want to watch it because it is a good show. And the way it was and the way they the way they set it up, that if your name is mentioned, then you get 30 seconds to respond or something like that made it, you know, more of a show. And so I feel I really felt like I was watching a show. But that's why I want to get back to that New York Times editorial, because that's a pretty uh, influential um, place from which to write 
the kind of critique they were writing. But, you know, do, do we think that that's going to really change anything? I don't know. Well, I think the New York Times article is, is saying th- some of this is really serious stuff. And yeah. if you're going to lead America, you really do have to tell people that vaccinations are safe. I mean, you can't be cute about this kind There's of stuff. There's two yet. doctors on stage. Yeah, right. They said nothing. Yeah. They said okay, nothing. What were you going to say before? My question, oh, what happened to the League of Win- Women Voters? nonpartisan group. They used to run the debates, right? Mm-hmm. What happened to them? Where did they go? Oh, well, I don't think they ever run, run sort of pre, uh, pre-nomination debates. Uh, uh-huh. I could be wrong about that. But, but anyway, clearly, the, <laughs> I mean, what happened to them is, is what we're really talking about. Is this, this turned out to be worth a lot of money. Yeah, it's the highest bidder, maybe. It gets the, the debates like the NFL or something. You know, people are bidding for the contract. Uh, because it's money now. And, and, and I think maybe even the sheer number of candidates is enabled by Citizens United also. Uh, the fact that there's so much money streaming into that system that virtually any one of us could declare our candidacy now and probably have a super PAC by tomorrow. The scary thing, too, is that it's how many people believe it, you know, that there isn't any any, where's the voice of reason in our in our culture? I mean, I just feel like so when you hear those interviews with those people who say, well, you know, since we've had a Muslim in office for all this time and, you know, we just really have to go do something over there in the Middle East, they, you know, completely ignorant um, assessments of things and they nobody's questioning them. There's nobody that they can turn to to say, well, wait, I mean, there are people they could turn to, but they don't turn to them. You know, that, that's the thing that just frightens me so much. Well, it is sort of so uh, other writers have talked about. Uh, is it Thomas P- – Joseph P. Welch and his have you no shame, sir. Sometimes it takes a while to get to the have you no shame, sir moment. We're not there yet. But in another event that happened this week, uh, and we'll just have a few minutes to talk about it, something that maybe uh, we should have had a little shame about or adjusted our feelings about a long time ago finally got dealt with and of, in of all places uh, where it started – the Miss America pageant. Let's hear this clip here. On behalf of today's organization, I want to apologize to you. And to your mother, Miss Helen Williams, I want to apologize for anything that was said or done that made you feel any less the Miss America you are and the Miss America you always will be. So Kate Russian, this is all about Vanessa Williams, uh, way, way back, a long, long time ago. She was the first black Miss America for about a cup of coffee because it turned out uh, that uh, there were pictures, uh, photographs, sort of studio photographs she'd posed for as a very young woman. She didn't have any clothes on. She was um, uh, sometimes dressed a, a little bit exotically in addition to not having any clothes on. Uh, and um, it, this was at, at a time where that really could be your undoing. Oddly enough, or perhaps fortunately, or I don't know how to put but what the right adverb is, but Suzette Charles, I think her name was, was the first runner-up, and she was also African-American, so uh, we didn't wind up with a white Miss America as a result of this. But it's, I think it left a pretty funny feeling in a lot of people, and, and Vanessa Williams has gone on to have a perfectly wonderful career in, in entertainment. Maybe not quite the career she would have had without this scandal, I have no idea, but uh, – uh, I'm sure you. I'm sure you have very vivid memories, and, and as an African American, young African American woman at the time, I'd even be interested in knowing kind of how that felt, how it looked. It was a big deal. I think it's it's hard for people to imagine what a big deal this was back uh, in in the in eighty three, eighty four. Vanessa Williams winning Miss America. 
I would compare to the way people felt in the, the 30s when Joe Lewis uh, knocked out his opponent, a white man. And when she lost her crown or had to resign from the position, I should say, uh, I think people felt a blow much like people felt when Joe Lewis was defeated. It was that big a, big a deal. And I think if you could imagine uh, how people would have felt, say, if Venus and Serena had had come to some bad end to their careers when they were young. It was comparable to that. Um, for, for me, um, it was a blow because the first Miss African-American Miss America said something about black women and beauty. And it took until 1970 before the first uh, African-American contestant reached the stage. And there actually had been a, um, a rule, rule number seven, saying that the Miss America contestant had to be of good health and of the white race. And so it was a big deal when, uh, when Vanessa Williams won, and it was a big deal when uh, it looked like her career was going down in scandal. So that was back in 83, 84. We're going to have to go through this pretty quickly because we've got to have time for endorsements on the other side, although I have no endorsements this week, but that's my problem. Um, but, you know, Jim, one thing that it does strike me, one difference between then and now, I mean, a lot of ch- things have changed. A lot, a lot, a lot of things have changed uh, that make it different now and make it seem as though this probably would be a somewhat more survivable thing uh, at this point. But one of the things that's changed, and you see it in the Ahmed Mohammed case, is it's much easier to rally support for somebody. Uh, I think with the Ahmed Mohammed, it was uh, Anil Dash or somebody like that who put together uh, some kind of website right away or some kind of social media campaign saying, look what's happening to this kid, let's do something about it. Whereas whatever support existed for Vanessa Williams in 83 and 84 was probably pretty scattered around and, and maybe hard to turn around the main wave of public opinion. Yeah, and I have to say that in those days, I guess maybe those were the the beginning of the end. I, I I can't imagine that there's a beauty pageant that's culturally significant now. It seems, I, you know, I I would never watch one or I would never – it's like watching a dog show. I mean, we're treating people as specimens and parading them out. And, you know, that's the only thing missing from the, the Republican debate is a bathing suit competition, in fact. <laughs> Don't even suggest that. Um, and so, Irene, just to wrap things up, uh, although we did read an essay by Jennifer Weiner, the novelist, saying – she does watch the Miss America pageant as a guilty pleasure. Yeah, which is, I mean, I can, uh, which I can understand because I used to be like sort of a feminist little girl, but I loved watching Miss America back then, you know, because I thought it was interesting to, you know, but it's it's interesting to to analyze that. But and I, but the rule, you know, I remember the Vanessa Redbreast, uh, Vanessa Vanessa Williams, thinking, why did she, you know, too bad she broke the rule. I didn't remember thinking she shouldn't have been banned from being Miss America. So that makes me think about it now, you know, like. You know, if it had been a white Miss America, how would that have been different? Well, she had to resign. the The pictures mm. were racy, and they were in penthouse. Yeah, right. It so it really was. But but what you're just not allowed to do that. I mean, in a way, why aren't you allowed that to pose in penthouse? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then actually, there was a piece in the Root uh, that I think I sent around at the last minute uh, from an African American writer saying, you know what, uh, you, you look at this whole thing another way. That you know, there the, that kind of thinking did exist and probably still does exist a little bit. And you know. Maybe 
maybe it's what she did is sort of a lesson to everybody. Be careful about who you let take your picture under what circumstances. Not that in this age people seem to be learning that you lesson know, If that's the case, <laughs> one might want to take a look at some of the pictures of Donald Trump's wife that are readily available posing in sort of girly magazines and makes us wonder – would there be a poll? Oh, Would let's not. Let's not. not. It's really bad. All right. Let's take a break. We'll come back with endorsements. Mr. Moderator, I'd like to talk about defense. Defense I have in mind would run from San Diego, California to North Korea. There would be a diving board on the San Diego end so we could all go swimming. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me with help from Betsy Kaplan and Katie Tolarski. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Rand Paul. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making burritos, visit our website, wnpr.org, slash Colin. On Monday, Colin and hilarious writer Alexandra Petrie break down the Emmys. And now, back to Colin. We'll also be doing some somewhat more serious analysis of the impending visit by Pope Francis uh, on Monday's show. So join us for that. Time for endorsements. Uh, Irene, you go first. Um, I'm going to endorse... Uh, um Local art, but you know, purchasing local art. I mean, I, 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 there's so many wonderful artists that have great pieces and things that I would never have ordinarily thought of buying because I would think they'd be too expensive. But I recently have a piece of my house by Pierre Sylvain, S Y L V A I N, and it's so beautiful and it's very reasonably priced. And I just think we should all support our local artists that are, uh, you know, when they have shows and coffee shops and everything, pay attention and maybe get one. Yeah, I, I've got a Lynn Bay and I've got a J- Gary Jacobs, and there's all this great art up there in our favorite coffee shop, shop Cafe so Sophia, cute. right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, in West Harbor Center, go see that. Uh, Kate Russian, what have you got? I'm going to endorse Envision Fest in downtown Hartford tomorrow, September 19th, especially Hartford On My Mind exhibit, which is at the Hartford Public Library, Main Branch, and the exhibit is Images from 550 Main Street in honor of the 100th anniversary of the municipal building. Also, the Wadsworth Athenaeum is having their grand reopening tomorrow morning, and a poetry reading down on the shoreline at the Mystic Arts Center at 7 o'clock. You can hear Major Jackson and Nan Mealy, and that's free, of course. Jim, what have you got? Well, I'll endorse local art, too. Uh, the Shinolas are back at the Corner Pug, P-U-G, next Tuesday, the 22nd. Tomorrow, Mitchell Farms, uh, which is a retirement community for horses. We should all be so lucky. Uh, is hosting a festival uh, with uh, Aztec Two-Step, Jonathan Edwards, and the Pusat Dark Band, and it's usually a blast. They're really, really nice people. They treat people nice, and they treat horses nice. And finally, I would encourage you, I just took a tour of the Broad Institute in Cambridge where they are solving everyone's medical problems from here t- till eternity, pretty much. Uh, they did the Human Genome Project, and now they're doing the Human Tumor Project. It's an amazing place. I would urge you to check it out, the Broad Institute. 
B-R-O-A-D. So on behalf of uh, Kion Wolf, I invite you to The Mouth. Uh, that's the storytelling session that she hosts at the Mark Twain House. That's tonight, $7.30, $5 to get in. The theme is Caught in the Axe, stories about not getting away with it. So if you enjoyed uh, our conversation with Maddie Dix last week, uh, one of the great storytellers in Hartford and one of the great storytellers on the national circuit, maybe you'll uh, uh, partake of storytelling tonight. And I, I guess I'll use the rest of my time just to remind everybody, I only have mentioned it once so far, on October 20th, we're going to do a different kind of thing. We're going to do a book club on the air where we, our panelists will all read Purity, the new Jonathan Franzen novel. And we really invite you to do this, too. you got time in between now and October 20th to buy the book uh, and read it. You'll enjoy the show so much more, and you know we'll take calls and stuff like that. And, and so I thought it would be fun, anyway, if um, everybody all read the same book. Um, okay, I've actually got a few more seconds. Are you doing a Watkinson thing soon? I'm doing a Watkinson thing. So, yeah, that's what other thing we're doing. Uh, there's so many things coming up. Yes, I'm with Ben Vereen. It's uh, St. Joseph uh, University uh, on Saturday the 26th. That's at 3.30. Those tickets are also open to the public. See, I hate using my endorsements just to plug stuff. And then I believe it's October 7th. We start Freshly Squeezed, the series, uh, the discussion series that I do at the Watkinson School. The conversation this time is going to be, is college necessary? Should everybody go to four years of college? Does everybody need uh, that much college? A mind is a terrible thing to waste, but so is $240,000, which I'll is, I think, what my the, daughter. the average four-year liberal arts uh, tuition would be these days. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, listening today. Thanks to Jim Chapdelaine and Kate Russian and Irene Popoulos. And we'll be back on Monday with The Scramble. Talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, getting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm on the radio. See, I'm on the radio. On the radio, baby. Do we talk about it now? Hey, Craig, check out what I made. I'm a little busy here, Kyone. Craig, seriously, I brought in a little something to shake things up around here. Kyone, are you serious? Did you bring a bomb? To work. Greg, it's a metronome. Is this because I have dreadlocks and tattoos and piercings and I'm double jointed and because my arm hair is translucent? Ugh. <laughs>